some time thinking about the people around us. We have said that as a church, we want to be a good place to meet Jesus. We want people to come and find in us a good place to be. But in that good place, we want people to meet Jesus. Then we started thinking, well, what, what does it mean for people to interact with Jesus? What, what people? Who? Where? And what are those people like? Uh, for many of us, the people we most interact with are the people around us. I've used the word neighbour, but you could equally say family members, uh, work colleagues, people you, I don't know, go bowling with, I don't know, whatever is those people that you interact with. What, What are they like? What are people thinking? Because it's changed. Our world has changed. And there is a sense in which what we do in this world has changed. There were days... When to build a new church, you put up a building and you open the doors. And that's it. People would come. We don't live in that world anymore. That is not our world. So I thought it would be good to take some time looking at two things. One, at what the Scriptures say about how we interact with the world around us, but also look at some of the data that's coming from people who've looked at the world around us. In this case, we're going to be looking at some research done on faith and belief in Australia by McCrindle Research. So we're going to see some uh, figures. The the stuff from McCrindle Research uh, goes back to... um, a study done in 2017, so it's starting to get a bit old. What is it now? This is seven years. Time for an update, I think. But given that the last census was in 2011, we're still doing pretty well. Okay, let's have a look. Called today Losing the Privilege. Because there is a very real dynamic... The Tonga, the people with a privileged voice, so that if the church speaks, Australia listens. That used to be the case, but it's not. Not now. And we're going to look at some of that and what happened in losing the privilege and, in a sense, at why that doesn't leave us going, hmm, but actually gives us an opportunity. That's a lot of info, isn't it? But I want to show you something. The inside circle here is the 2011 census. This is why we've got this screen down here so I can point at it. I like pointing at things. See. In the 2011 census, the people who wrote on the census that they identified as Christian amounted to about uh, 61% of Australia. In 2017, McCrindle Research did its own research And they added in a category that the census didn't. That is, people who saw themselves having a spirituality, but but that spirituality not necessarily belonging to a, a belief system. Spiritual, but not religious. 
Now, what's interesting in this is that about 45% of Australians still identify as Christian. Australians actually go to church on a regular basis, and 97%, it says, are actually identify as being serious about it. The figures are starting to look worse, aren't they? What has grown um, over the years has been this dark blue section, the people who identify as having no religion whatsoever. Don't want anything to do with it. Australians identifying with no religion has grown from 0.4% in 1911 to 22% in 2011. From less than half of a percent of our culture to getting towards a quarter of our culture. It's a big growth. So what do we do with some of this? Well, I want to look at a couple of things. One thing is the role of church. After all, that's where we are now. We're gathering, we're churching together, aren't we? We're gathering together as the people of God. What is the the function of this? Well, here's an interesting thing. They took all the people who said that they were Christian and they asked them, so what does church look like, like for you? And here's the graph. I've had to, they only did it in text, so I've turned it into a graph for you. Uh, 22% of those who identify as Christians go to church 8% once a year, 20% less than once a year, and nearly 30% never. So even those who identify as Christian, you're starting to see... There is a, there's still this gap. It's just diminishing. The gap is diminishing because a lot of people in this section are starting to use that dark blue section and say, actually, I'm going to go for nothing at all. I'm going for no religion. People are, are, are losing the idea of being a nominal, somebody who says they're a Christian but actually has nothing to do with Christianity. What about the people out there. What do they think about church? I've actually found this rather fascinating. 18% don't know a thing about what happens in here, at least in their minds. This is how people think of, for them, this is how people think when they're answering questions. They would say, I know nothing about what goes on in a church. 60% think they know a little bit about what goes on in a church. We can argue whether they'd be right. And 22% think they know a great deal of what goes on in the church. Again, we can argue if you like. So there's a, this ignorance of what church is, and yet look at this. not know one single, in their minds, they would tell you that they do not know one single Christian. So either every Christian they've met has kept that fact to themselves, or they've just never met one. 8% of Australia, which is about 1.5 million people in this country, don't know a single Christian. Just sit with that for a second. And think again on the growing statistics of nothing to do with Christianity, no interest in going to church, but actually no idea what happens there anyway. Because they've never met a Christian. In spite of that, sorry, in spite of that's coming up. In terms of the local church, 
Most have no idea what's going on here. Ladies, most people who've got a church nearby them have little to no idea uh, of what happens at that church, who goes there, what it does. It's just one of those buildings in their community. 26% moderately well knowing the church in their area. 18% extremely well. Despite this, here's what they think of the role of the local church in their community. Only 9% think that the church, the local church, has a negative role in the local community. 44% think it has a really good role in the local community. So 56% have got no idea what they do. But whatever it is, it must be good. Do you see the odd place we are? A lack of interaction with Christians, a lack of understanding of Christianity, and yet still, in spite of everything, and we're going to look at some of the things over weeks to come that stand out as some of those in spite ofs. There are some big hurdles that people have when approaching Christianity. In spite of those hurdles... When it comes to the role of the local church in the local community, they see value. I mean, the biggest group are kind of neither here nor there, but astounding figures, the 44%. That's church. That's how people see church. How do people see the one we want them to meet when they come to our church? How do they see G's next and miss things? So hold that thought. I'm coming back to it. I want to just observe. Can you see why opening the doors and expecting people to flood into your building doesn't work? Build it and they will come is not the motto of the church in the 21st century. Build it and they'll go, oh, probably doing something useful. Good for them. No idea what it is, no desire to know. Opening the doors is not enough. Now we get to Jesus. We're going to get there. As I said, we've said we want to be a good place to meet Jesus. We want people to interact with Jesus, not with Christianity as a some kind of uh, system of belief, not with the church as some kind of institution, but with Jesus, a person who we want people to meet, to come to know, to see the wonder of knowing him. So what do people think about Jesus? I'm going to do a little bit of a straw poll here. Who thinks that the average Joe out there thinks positively about Jesus? Who thinks they think negatively about Jesus? couple people? Well, whatever they think, once again, there's a whopping lot of ignorance. How much do Australians know about Jesus' life? 28%, very little or nothing. How's that for a surprise? 24% would say, oh, we know a little bit. 45% would say, oh, I think we know a significant amount. Um, Again, we might want to argue whether they actually do or not. But 3% have never even heard of him.
no idea who the person the name attaches to is. 3% of Australia. If 8% is 1.5 million, you're still talking a pretty significant number of people, aren't you? I'll let you do your own maths. I'm not going to try. And yet, once again, despite all the ignorance, there is this this rather odd thing. In terms of the history and culture of the world, how important is Jesus? Everyone went, well, to be honest, 53% said extremely important. 33% somewhat important. Only 14% said not very important at all. How about you? This Jesus, who they know a little bit about, some don't know anything about, very, very important culturally, but not really important for me. These are some of the obstacles we hit as we proclaim the good news, as we try and bring people to meet Jesus. Obstacles of how people view church, obstacles of how people view Jesus, and most of all, the massive obstacle of incredible ignorance. And coupled with the ignorance, a lack of desire to change that. An awful lot of the people who responded and said that they did not believe, they were actually asked, how willing are you to change your mind if you got new information, if there was something else discovered. I've got to say, I, I, I give all credit to their honesty in filling it out because they said not at all. We're, we're good. There, was a, there were some other responses, but there was a big group who said we wouldn't touch it. We wouldn't, didn't matter what you said to us, doesn't matter what you showed us, doesn't matter what information comes up, I'm good, thanks. I'm going to stay with my knee proclaim Jesus in that world. How do we talk to those neighbours? Because they're our neighbours. How do we help those people to come and meet Jesus, who we want them to meet because we have seen how breathtakingly wonderful he is? How amazing it is to know sin forgiven, to know freedom, to know a king who actually is always, always in everything pursuing good. How do we, how do we help those people meet Jesus? Well, for that... We don't turn to the popular views of research. We're going to turn to the scriptures and I'm going to go and get my Bible. If you've got your Bible, you could open it to 1 Peter chapter 2. I will have the verses up on the screen, but you may find it helpful to see them in their wider context. To 1 Peter... Because in 1 Peter, Peter is talking to Christians scattered around um, particularly what is known as Asia Minor, um, that part of Turkey that's in Asia. 
as opposed to Istanbul that isn't? And as he writes to them, he talks to them about the amazing things that God has done for them. And the incredible joy of having a God whose promises are secure. And in the light of those promises, he says this. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Can I just say, um, I was delighted at how far down the list hypocrite was as a description of the Christians that I know in the research. I was distressed at how far up the list it was too. The top five responses were all very... The problem is often that the, the obstacle for people interacting with Christianity is that the first thing they do is interact with a Christian. Um, my boss over in New Zealand used to have a great book on his shelf. I, well, actually, I, I say a great book. I never read it, so I've got no idea if it was a good book or not, but the title was amazing. The title was, When Bad Christians Happen to Good People. If you don't get that title, hang around Christians a little longer, you will. And I wish that wasn't so. And I wish it wasn't so that if you hang around me long enough, you'll get to know what that means. Often, when we're at our worst, we give excuse to those who want nothing to do with Christianity. And that's something that Peter is actually going to be taking up in his letter, the, um, the propensity for people to, to grab at excuses and the need to be living lives before this, the people of this world that, that, that give the lie to their excuses and their rejection. But for the moment he says, no, for you, get rid of those things for you. Get rid of those things that shouldn't be part of you. Like malice, like deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. They're things that shouldn't be at work amongst us. And when they are, how ugly does it look? I spoke to one person who was working in a company with a, a Christian boss. And he said the problem was the Christian boss was the most crooked member of staff in the entire place. What testimony does that give to the goodness and the wonder and the grace of the Lord Jesus? Now, like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk so that you're growing in your salvation, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. But in the end... The big thing is, whilst Christians, whilst Christians can be like a stumbling block for people, they can come up to a Christian and their behaviour and their manner and their words are things that cause people to balk at wanting anything to do with Christianity. There is an even bigger stumbling block and that one you cannot get rid of. 
There is a stumbling block over which people will fall, and you cannot remove it because it's Jesus. Jesus actually living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering, pure, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here the picture is, is a temple picture. And he's saying, you're like the the building, you're like the priesthood, you're like all those things that are part of the trappings of Israel because you're like Jesus. And Jesus is those things. Jesus is the living stone. Jesus is the one who is our model, our saviour, our Lord. But the one we seek to imitate, to be like. And the one who we are made like through the gospel. For in scripture, it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. When making a stone building, forgive, I ask the forgiveness of those who've heard this story a thousand times before from a thousand different preachers. But when making a stone building, The first stone placed at the corner of the building is placed with incredible care because it sets everyone. It sets the direction of the first course of stones because everything is going to be measured to that stone. It sets whether the the building is going to be vertical in its walls because everything is set to that stone. It is the standard by which the rest of the building is then built. It is laid with incredible care. It is laid with incredible importance. The rest of the building goes up much more easily. Getting the cornerstone in place, that is what counts. In Isaiah 28, God talks about laying a precious cornerstone in Zion. One to be trusted in, aligned to, set your shape by. And that the one who sets their shape by him will never be put to shame. So to those of us who believe, that's a very precious stone. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The one that people dismiss is actually the one alignment from yet is dismissed, is rejected. But it's not just rejected, it lays like a a stone of stumbling. We've been up in at Mount Tambourine uh, over this weekend. Uh, some of you may know a rather nasty storm came through on Christmas night. Uh, A tornado actually ripped through. I didn't know we had tornadoes in Australia, but I I can tell you now from watching, there was a tornado that went straight through Mount Tambourine, ripped up a lot of trees. And we've been up there with chainsaws trying to chop down trees. Well, chop up trees that are already fallen. And at night... Because we're camping up there, you kind of stumble around the yards going back down. I have a skill. 
and I defy anyone to be as good as me at this. I can trip over anything. Right? I can have a blank floor that has nothing on it for 100 metres, and I will still find something to trip on. You're going to give me a challenge, are you? Yeah, OK. Thanks, Trevor. It's nice to have company, at least. <laughs> but you can picture a, a world where there's thick grass, stones, Australia is one of them. Those rocks that you find with your feet and then the ground that you find with your face as you topple over. And the picture is that, that this discarded, rejected, unwanted stone, this stone of incredible preciousness, incredible value, that by this world is rejected and thrown away, is the stone on which they will stumble and fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Peter wants to put a sharp contrast. It's not that Jesus is chosen, precious, and of utmost importance to those who believe, and you can pick your religious figure for those who believe something else. Jesus isn't one option in the celestial supermarket of God's who you can bring to bear for your faith and they can bring whatever they want to their faith. Rather, the stone, when rejected, becomes the stone on which you fall, the stone on which you topple, because he is still the one to whom you need to align. Peter tells his readers that you are a chosen people. By contrast, you who have put your trust in that one, aligned yourself to him, you are a, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. All of this language comes from the Old Testament. It comes from a really special moment when all of God's people have been gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai and at the top of Mount Sinai, there's thunder, there's rumbling, they can hear God speaking and it's terrifying and they actually say, could you ask him not to speak so loudly because it's scaring us and can you go up and have a talk to him yourself? It's a picture of incredible majesty as God, the God of the universe, the God who placed every star, who placed every stone, the God who made every leaf, the God who made every solar system. That God took a people for himself. And the language that was used as God entered this agreement with the people of Israel was that they would be, out of all the nations, his chosen possession. They would be for him a royal nation. That this holy nation set us up. Here's Peter saying, you are part of that. You are part of that privileged group. You are part of those whom God has given the outrageous privilege of being his special chosen people. But notice, 
there is a purpose behind your position. You have a purpose as God's chosen people. You have a purpose as his royal priesthood. You have a purpose as his holy nation. And that is to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Because God's intention is not that in setting you aside as his treasured possession, you become very impressed with yourselves. Some kind of holy in-club. That's not the intention that God has for this Here's an interesting question. If you're a royal priesthood, who are you priests to? Doesn't it imply there's somebody else? If you are the ones who act as the as a, a, a one who, who brings together if, if you're there speaking God's words to people and people's words to God, as the priests did in the Old Testament, as they came with the sacrifices of the people as one of the people, as they went to the people and announced the word of God as, as his messengers, if that's your role, who is it to? Who are you priests to? If not, everybody else. That you might declare the praises, the magnificence, the wonder of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We have been gathered together so that a world might hear. Way back when Abraham, the great father of Israel was called in Genesis chapter 12, three promises. Some people will have looked at this and they should be able to tell me. Promise number one. Come on, Tom. Sorry? A land. A mighty nation. All the world will be blessed. So the intention, all the way back with the creation of Israel, was not to create a people who could gather inside buildings and enjoy being distinct, but to create a people whose very existence, whose role in this world, is to bring God's blessing to all nations of the earth that all might hear the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Jesus, the stumbling block, the one whom people will stumble over, is a reality. People will choke at the person of Jesus. And that comes out. In the research McCrindle do, some people really just didn't like him. The people to stumble, the rock who makes them fall. But you speak. You declare. 
You go into that world knowing that Jesus is the stumbling block. There you go, there it is in bold. In the past, there was a view of church where churches were built as, and they were scattered all around the community because they were community hubs. I spoke to Sybil's uncle uh, many, many years ago who used to live in the um, New Zealand town of Greymouth. Anybody ever been to Greymouth? My apologies. Um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of the grey city. It's, it's, it's a bit dreary. Uh, Greymouth, he, he was living in Greymouth. And there was a guy in the town who gave himself his own... He, he, he was sort of... This was a self-appointed job. He would get on his horse and he would ride around Greymouth chasing people off to church. And every now and then, because it was a mining town, most of them went to the same church, which was the big Catholic church in town. But every... Well, get to it! And he chased them up to there. Because what was the role of the church in community? It was the spiritual chaplaincy service to Christendom, to the Christian society that was around them, a society that saw itself as basically Christian. And these churches became the hubs for those Christians to gather because everybody's Christian. It's a thing that dated back to the time when Christianity became a legitimate religion in the empire and the emperor of Constantine converted to Christianity and everyone started going, ooh, access to the empire is the most, emperor is the most important thing. Empires are Christian, so I guess I am now too. And the closer I can get using my Christianity to the emperor, the more privilege I get. I wasn't using Christianity for that last week. He wasn't a Christian. I was using a different... You know what I mean? It became culturally advantageous. It became culturally normal. It was a very short time, historically speaking. And then the Roman Empire was nominally a Christian empire. Christianity was not just the, the, a tolerated religion in the, in the empire. And that's why when you come to England, England was Christian and France was Christian. And the job of the local church was to be there as the Christians did what society demanded of them. And those days are long gone. And I want to suggest that those days were deceitful days. Those were days when Christianity was an easy tool for power in culture. What? what are we now if that's not what we are? I did hear somebody say that we're more like a those little revolutionary cells that meet in the jungle and plot the overthrow of their culture. And there's something to that, though I'm not sure how far I want to push it. It does get a bit icky. But that's more where we've got to start thinking, isn't it? We are people who meet together 
because we want to see a world that knows Jesus, that has met Jesus, that comes. So as we begin this year, let's not be just thinking about how we can be comfortable here, but how we can be a people who proclaim that Jesus. Yes, in a world where it is tough to proclaim Jesus, expecting people to stumble on him. Be careful that Jesus is the stumbling block set before people, not us. Strive to make Jesus the one they stumble on, not you. Not our hypocrisy. Not our deceitfulness. Not any of those things that the Apostle Peter said that we were to rid ourselves of. But rather, as people who have an incredible position in Jesus Christ, let's do what we have been formed to do. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the wonder of what he has given to us. Life. Life that is eternal. Life that is in the face of all that we have brought upon ourselves. All that we deserve. Instead, you give us life. And not just life, but life in abundance. Life under the king of all kings. Life as his treasured possession. Life as a chosen people. As a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people who belong to you. Lord, we live in a world where your name has been and will go on being slandered and ignored. And sadly, it is a world in which some of that slandering of your name has happened in the conduct of your people. Our Lord and God, we ask that you would use us that people might find a good place to meet Jesus, him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Because we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.